He's a retired sergeant from the Connecticut State Police, having served for 26 years. He's now the executive director of Officer Safety and Wellness for the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. He's here to talk about Sandy Hook, the trauma, his experience after, and much more. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours, the Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Joining us from Connecticut, we have Troy Anderson on the phone. Troy is the Executive Director for Officer Safety and Wellness for the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. Their website is nleomf.org. He's also a retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant, served for 26 years. And he, before retiring, he was Director of Wellness and Resilience and played a big role in Sandy Hook and the critical incident debriefing and stress management afterwards. Troy, thanks for your service, number one, and thanks for being guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. By the way, how long ago did you retire from the Connecticut State Police? I retired in the summer of 2021, and strangely, I retired from the State Police twice. I liked it so much, I had to go back for a second round. Does anybody call you Sarge? I'm a retired sergeant. Does anybody call you Sarge, or is that a term that only happened in police work? No, I think that there are still some uh, some folks that I worked with over the years that uh, affectionately call me that. I, yeah. I hope that it's a title. I hope it's an earned title, but they they somehow seem to call me that by default. That's uh, a very rare thing I hear nowadays. And funny, my wife, the boss, I call her, is always one rank higher than I am. Doesn't matter where I'm at in the chain so of command. We'll call her the lieutenant then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so before we get into your story about serving Connecticut State Police, and in particular about Sandy Hook, uh, which was a tremendously violent situation for everybody. I, I want people to realize we're not going to talk about the, the physical traumas. We're not going to talk about the violence because sometimes it's just too much. And I, I tell people, I'm a feeble human being. People send me video cams, dash cams, body cam videos. They want my so-called, and I'm air quoting, Troy, expert opinion on this and i'm like i don't watch that stuff I, I because it gets me like i'm right back into it and i don't want to be there um, and it messes me up for a long time so we're not going to talk about that we're going to talk about the after fact and what troy did and and all those sorts of things 26 years in any law enforcement agency is a long time you can see a lot of horrendous things and i think in addition to sandy hook you've been through the mill haven't you yeah, I, I served uh, before the state police. I was a, a, a combat veteran, uh, an ODS veteran, Army military police, and also spent some time in the Connecticut Department of Correction and then three years uh, on a, a municipal police agency. So altogether, definitely north of 30 years, but 26 years with the state. And, you know, I, I think that there are times where sometimes folks in law enforcement feel like they are having some genetic predisposition. And, you know, you were talking about it very eloquently 
frequently there as you as you sort of summarize people uh, either sending you videos or clips or looking for your opinion or you know you stumble across things and you know we're all we're all wired the same way it's just we, we're signing up for a different job and you know I, I, I think that we do practice resilience certainly more so now than we ever did in law enforcement or in the military I think we're learning from from our lessons as we go along I think the, the Vietnam generation had a, a very appropriate saying we know too much to get it wrong this time and I think as, as police work evolves and so does the work in critical incident stress management peer support resilience the whole thing as that evolves I think I think we're doing better um, but there's always unfortunately stigma out there and I think that that is one of the more more difficult things that we're up against uh, especially in law enforcement but we're you know we're getting through it and uh, and, and we're definitely picking up tools along the way and and you know, that's one of the things that, that we're doing at the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund certainly in the officer safety and wellness this uh, pillar, uh, and we, we can we can talk more about that. I'm sure we will. But uh, but but I served uh, I, worked, I served in a number of capacities as a state trooper, uh, as a road trooper, and of course Connecticut is a, a very unique state for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that it's one of only two states in the country that doesn't have a county form of government. So only about half the towns in Connecticut have organized police forces. The rest are covered by the state police. So when you're a state trooper in a rural area, you'll have several towns that you'll be patrolling and, and you're really the only, uh, only game in town. And then we have a resident state trooper program, which is unique. That's when a, uh, when a town sort of contracts you to be their de facto chief of police, if you will. And, um, you know, in, very, in many cases, you're overseeing a constabulary. So I had a chance to, to do that in a couple of different towns. I served as a detective in our uh, Bureau of Criminal Investigation. I was a sergeant uh, overseeing or working in our internal affairs uh, unit for a period of time. And then in 2006, Seven, I created a program called STOPS, which is State Troopers Offering Peer Support. And of course, like so many agencies, it was the, the silver lining of a very dark cloud of some, some events that happened in the state police, a couple murder-suicides that had happened. And, you know, we, I think I really recognized at that point, that happened in 2005, I recognized that that we were really at a position of disadvantage. We didn't have really any internal programs. We relied heavily upon an external employee assistance program, which was a contract vendor, and they didn't really have a relationship with us. And I don't know that they were necessarily as culturally competent in the uh, in the clinical category as we would have liked. Uh, so after those events, I, I authored a letter and sent it out to our commissioner and our colonel and uh, and our union president, just you know, kind of kind of saying really what. We've, what we've done right and what we could do better. And the doing better part really included creating uh, a peer support program uh, and critical incident stress management and military support and chaplaincy. So I kind of put together an idea in my head. I wrote it out and uh, a year later that letter uh, found its way to the General Assembly where they uh, sort of codified a public act uh, bringing that uh, public act, which I believe was, uh, I can't even remember, PA086 or something. But anyway, um, that that really, they, they forced the state police to have a peer support program. We did a bunch of work. We brought in some really amazing people and created a steering committee. Uh, from that steering committee, we had rank and file folks from the state police. We had executive leadership. We had the Connecticut State Police Union. We had our external employee contract vendor there. Uh, we, we really brought everybody and we started looking at really what the best practices 
were, were being done at the time across the country. Who had peer support? What can we gain from this so we don't have to reinvent the wheel? Adopted what we could, created what we needed to. And then in 2007, uh, the STOPS program was launched. Uh, I was fortunate to be selected as the, uh, the first statewide coordinator, which I served from 2007 to 2017. So I had a good 10-year run with that. And that I think is really, as we talk about Sandy Hook and we talk about some of our successes, one of the main things, and, and we had done a podcast recently looking back on the 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook, and I, and I brought together a, a number of key players that were, that were with us um, for, the, for the whole process. And one of the things that really came out of that discussion was how well-placed we were. And I will tell you that nobody is going to be 100% ready for no, a Sandy Hook. Be. We're going to take a short break. You, we're talking with Troy Anderson on a Law Enforcement Today show. I'll let you know what's coming up. We're going to talk about Sandy Hook, his role with Connecticut State Police, and now what he's doing with the being Executive Director of the Officer Safety and Wellness for National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund and how trauma really impacts all of us. This is Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Harmony with Food Radio Show. I am your host, Meg Marie O'Rourke. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I am a nutritionist for longer than I'd like to admit on the radio. Join my guests and I as we discuss how to live in harmony with food from gut health issues, food sensitivities, food intolerances, and the comorbidities of obesity. Being your own healthcare advocate is achievable, and so is living in harmony with food. For the latest nutrition information blogs, check out my website, harmonywithfood.com. We're returning to conversation with Troy Anderson. He's the executive director for officer safety and wellness for the National and Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. Their website is nleomf.org. If you just thought they were about the memorial, you're wrong. They do so much more. He's also a retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant, served for 26 years, 30 years in law enforcement altogether. And a big player, I, I'm not sure how to say this because it always sounds corny, Troy. A big player in officer wellness, mental health, resilience, and, and peer support, overcoming critical incidents, trauma. The things back in the day when I was policing what we did is we got a case of beer and sat in a parking lot and drank and talked about it. That's what we did. And for many ways, it worked well, but the beer became an issue. For many people, it did. And we never quite got it out, all of it out. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, you know, I mean, it, and that's choir practice, and everybody knows what that is. I, I've had a chance to travel around this country extensively and work with law enforcement, and everybody knows what choir practice is. I think, you know, one of the things that we look at, especially when we look at firefighters, is is how 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 mentally resilient firefighters seem to be, and the, and the reality is they do something that's very different than the way we practice our vocation, and that is firefighters respond as a group. Historically, they respond as a group to to a, to a crisis or a critical incident or a scene, and then when they're done, they all go back together and they they demobilize and they sit together and they normalize the effects of that critical.
historical incident by talking about it. Right. The difference between what they're doing in firefighting and what we do in law enforcement is that we, we get back in a car after you get done with a bad scene and you get called to a SIDS death and then you go to an arson call where somebody lost all of their belongings and then you're going to an untimely death somewhere or a, or a fatal and you don't really get an opportunity. So we tend to compartmentalize more. We put that away and, and we know that stress is very, very unhealthy. And to be able to package this away, uh, the reality is it's like your attic. You can only put so many boxes in your attic before it's full and eventually you're going to have to offload that. One of the things that someone told me a long time ago, in the early days of this show, was they said going to a police academy, what they do is they issue you a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line at the time backpack. And every call you go on, you're going to throw a pebble, a grain of sand, a boulder into that backpack. And unless you find a way to unload some of that, you're going to get one, one call that is going to be the, the thing that breaks the, 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 the backpack and you're going to fall apart. How accurate is that as an explanation? I mean, that is, that is 100% right. I think that one of the things that we're doing much better in law enforcement now is recognizing that we need to combat that. Uh, we need to find opportunities to offload that, whether that be through uh, debriefings or diffusings or different interventions. Uh, you know, we talking about it. I, I think I think. When I started in law enforcement 30 years ago, if you were sitting in roll call and somebody brought up, not that they would have, but if they brought up that uh, that them and their significant other were involved in some sort of counseling together, they would have been laughed out of the room. Right. Or if somebody had said, wow, that was a really bad call. I didn't sleep well last night because of that. You know, I, I think that sergeant probably would have told you to rub a little dirt on it and get back in the game. And it's not, that's not the way it is anymore. I've, I've sat in roll calls, uh, you know, certainly before I retired and had an opportunity to, to listen to some of the, the troopers talk about their experiences in counseling, and they're talking about it very openly. So I think that we've come a long, long way. There's certainly a lot, a, a lot more room to grow here, but we're, we're moving this in the right direction. And we're realizing, I think, that, that putting that backpack uh, that has now been full and having an opportunity to dump it out, is it also adds to your longevity. I look at, I look at the academy, for example, and you talked about the academy. Academy. Uh, and I think when folks go through the academy, they are mentally and physically and spiritually probably, you would think, in the greatest place of their life. Physically, they're in good shape. Mentally, they're in good shape. They've gotten through the academy. How is it that 20 or 30 years later at the end of their career, many folks are unrecognizable, not just physically, but mentally and spiritually, right? How are they, how are they changed so much? And um, I think that when you dedicate your life to public service, and in this case, law enforcement, you deserve more at the end of your career than to be sidelined, uh, to feeling detached, to feeling depressed, to being prone to anxiety, to having stress-related physical manifestations when we look at hypertension and you look at um, we look at uh, heart disease and cancer and so many things that we know are a direct byproduct of stress. We owe it to ourselves uh, to start thinking about those things now. Early in our career, how are we going to take care of ourselves? How am I? Am I coming into this profession with childhood traumas? Are there things that I haven't dealt with? I know it's hard to imagine that there have been at least a few people in our vocation that have gone through divorces. That's pretty yeah. significant especially if children are involved. And and how are we taking care of ourselves and what are we doing? Or are we just putting that 
also in our backpack because I think it's important to recognize that it's not just it's not just the professional crisis that happened in our life, but there's also a personal crisis. And how are we dealing with that? So that really kind of, when I look at this, I look at the prevention, I look at the intervention, and I look at the postvention. And I think part of that prevention is getting into the academy and educating folks young because uh, you're right. When when I entered the academy, they taught us how to do push-ups and shine our shoes, right. and we learned motor vehicle and criminal law. But there were no classes back then that talked about the universal and predictable signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. It didn't exist. It was something that you were going to figure out on your own. The reality is there's no way that you're going to get through a career in law enforcement and not be exposed to traumatic events. There's no way. Especially if if you come from, for example, a lot of the people, I say this as a compliment, I was trained by a lot of combat Vietnam veterans that were police. Mm -hmm. And we had a few commanders, command staff that were Korean War veterans. And they were a special breed uh, of policing. They really taught us the basics. They were really good. But so many of our law enforcement and other first responders are prior military. They're combat veterans. And they're bringing into that equation all that baggage and that backpack. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, and as we talk about, uh, I, I know that there are listeners out there today, and, and, and I know we're going to we're gonna kind of uh, get a little deeper into Sandy Hook, but one of the, the, the messages I think that anybody who's listening to this is that, you know, especially when you're looking at a, a major critical incident, a major uh, traumatic event like Sandy Hook, uh, it's not a matter of if these things are going to happen. It's a matter of when are they going to happen and where are they going to happen. And here's the other piece. Are we prepared? if it happens. And if you don't feel like you're prepared, if you don't have the answers now, today is the day to start addressing it. Because if you wait until after an event like that happens in your community, uh, it's too late. It's too, you, this is not, this isn't something that you're going to be able to perfect on the run. You might be able to navigate through it, but I promise that you are going to have a lot of collateral damage. And unfortunately that collateral damage usually equals losing folks along the way, either to suicide or, you know, burnout or check out or whatever it might be, early retirement, you lose people to substance abuse, relationships crumble. Uh, it's going to be a problem. So Start thinking now. What what do we have? If this happened in our community, everybody and, and, and should start. Everybody should start preparing for this because you made a great point. It's not a matter of if it'll happen; it's when. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll turn our conversation with Troy Anderson in just a few moments. We're going to talk about Sandy Hook and the impact and what they did at Connecticut State Police to help people deal with the impact of that trauma better. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Return to conversation with Troy Anderson. He's executive director for officer safety and wellness for the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund. Their website is nleomf.org. He's also retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant. He served his, there for 26 years. His prior military and law enforcement career spans 30 years. A big part of 
what you went through. And by the way, my wife is from Connecticut originally. And one of the things mm-hmm. you said earlier is when she moved south and we had counties, she's like, what are they talking about? I don't understand any of this. I'm like, <laughs> that, that explains why. So thanks for, for elaborating that. The other thing is I met her years after retiring from police work. And she has been really one of the best things for me. Because what happened in my first marriage was my inability to handle trauma better was a significant in factor in the marriage falling apart between drinking argumentativeness not being able to relax uh, short temperedness all that stuff it created a huge issue and she's doing well my daughters are well and my current wife as well but when i saw the news i guess it's a little over 10 years ago about the 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 massacre at sandy hook at the elementary school uh, without going into graphic details about all the children that were murdered and the teachers that were murdered, I had a seismic shift. And I thought to myself, and I guarantee, I'd gotten used to not carrying a gun anymore after retiring from police work. Uh, that was a conscious decision. That day, I went and got the paperwork for the national, the, the, the LEOSA, uh, I think it's called House Resolution 218 or House Bill 218, uh, and mm-hmm. got qualified and have been carrying every day since because I knew in my mind, Troy, that if I was there, I would go in, and I at least I have a fighting chance. I know that sounds crazy sure. to people who who don't think that way, but that's how my mind operates. Uh, and like I said, I was a long ways away. So the people that were there, the teachers, the 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 law enforcement officers, the other first responders, EMS, all those, I don't know how they dealt with that. Yeah, you know, it's funny that uh, it's not, I I wouldn't say it's funny. I've had a chance when you talk to folks all around the country who were impacted by Sandy Hook. One of the things that struck me uh, about a year and a half after Sandy Hook, I had an opportunity to do some some lecturing in Europe about critical incident stress management and was encountering some of the police and fire brigades there. And I was really struck by how affected they were by Sandy Hook, you know, all the way over in, in Europe. Europe, uh, how, how it impacted them. Uh, I think the reality is there, there are a number of reasons why Sandy Hook was probably one of the most traumatic events that you could imagine. And I think part of it was the fact that it had to do with children. Um, these were these were young children. They were defenseless children. And, and it was Christmas time or right before Christmas time. Uh, and, and then there's another there's another component to that. And, and I think it really is that Police pride themselves uh, of being very well trained and very well equipped, and there's a mindset in being a successful law enforcement officer, and that is that my job is to neutralize the threat. It's a preservation of life, and we've been practicing since Columbine active shooter training. We go through it at the academy. We go through it in in in-service training. We have better equipment now, and we are really trained to go in and neutralize the threat, and in this case, by the time anybody was able to get into the school and put themselves in a position where they could neutralize that threat, it had already been neutralized, right? So that I think is difficult for responders. I think it's difficult for families that are hearing about it. I think it's just, it's everything about that scene was difficult, but I was off, I was off duty that day, or at least I was supposed to be. Uh, and I got the call uh, in real time that there was an active shooter situation in San hook and I made my way there 
and by the time I got there, it was still hadn't been the, the tactical team was still clearing the building. So technically, it was still an active shooter situation. Um, but I think at that point, information had started to to roll out uh, how it had ended, that there had been a, a suicide involved, or at least that's what the presumption was. And, um, you know, then really it was it, I really needed to resort from going from that active shooter neutralize the threat. Now I had to kind of shift into what my role was as the state coordinator for our, our peer support program and our two critical incident stress management teams. I had a team in the east and a team in the west. And I had to really kind of do this on the fly. Now we had planned for situations that were uh, mass casualty events. We had trained for this before prior to Sandy Hook, but not this type. And you really can never be fully prepared. But we were very, I think we were we were really on the, the cutting edge, the tip of the spear as far as peer support programs at the time in the way that we were training our folks. I knew right away that I had to do some things. And I, I think that as I look back on those things, they were pivotal in, in really protecting not only the responders, but my team. Because one of the things I knew is I got to the school and, and I got to the door and I was talking to, to some of the folks that were coming out. And, and these were people that I knew for years. Uh, I, I could tell they, they were really coming, they were not in a, in a good place, as you can imagine. Many of them uh, were just sort of uh, walking around in a fog. I needed to take them and, and, and isolate them to some degree. I needed to get the team who had responded into the school. I needed to record their names to figure out who they were. I needed to make sure that I got them away from the scene to protect, to protect them, to make sure that they weren't continually traumatized by being at that event. So we set up a respite center at a nearby state police barracks. And at that center, I made sure that there was food and water. There was a team of peer support people. Critical incident stress management team members were there. We had our chaplaincy team and we had some from our employee assistance program and made sure that they got away because one of the things that had happened right after right after the shooting and we recognized that now it was transitioning to our what's our next phase after this and part of that was figuring out sadly that we were going to have to establish death notification teams it's on the worst things to do it's so hard it was it was very difficult, and unfortunately uh, for me, I was tasked with giving a class to the officers and the chaplains and the clinicians that were doing these death notifications. I had to give them a class in the uh, in the sort of uh, makeshift meeting room that we had at the nearby firehouse. I had to give a class on what to say and what not to say. In other words, how are we going to deliver this information? And uh, so I knew that and, I and didn't I want. Interrupt. They got to go Please. tell a parent that their child has been murdered. Correct. And uh, I, yeah, look, I, mean, I don't it's, know it's any easy thing. way to do this. And the reactions you get are so extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very extreme. And I, and I think that the majority, the vast majority of the parents or loved ones that were receiving that information at, at, at about midnight on this on the same day, on the 14th, uh, they all, I think, knew, yeah. uh, but they needed they needed to hear it, and they needed to hear it in a way that was as compassionate as it could be. And I, and we wanted to ensure that we had the right people making those notifications. We we certainly didn't want any of the people that had gone into the school to now go out and do those notifications. So we had to get different officers uh, who hadn't been in the school, and um, and I think that they did a, a wonderful job. In fact, I stayed 
stayed until the last notification team came back. And I think that was at about three in the morning. The last team made it back and, and we checked them back in and it was extremely difficult. It was uh, that entire experience. I can't tell you how heavy that was. And, uh, you know, you just knew when that notification team, when all those notification teams left at the same time to go make those notifications, you knew the information that they were delivering and that lives were going to be changed forever. And uh, not just the lives of the people receiving that information, but the lives of the people delivering it. So I knew it was incumbent upon my team to make sure that, that we took care of everybody in the best way that we could. And I think that that's, you know, we did that. We did that. And part of the, part of the way we that cut we you did off. that. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Troy Anderson. We have so much more to talk about. He's the executive director of officer safety and wellness for the National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Fund and also retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant. Talking about Sandy Hook and much more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show? Never fear. You can sign up for our free email newsletter and get access to past podcast episodes. Plus, all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. We promise we will never spam you. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. conversation on the Law Enforcement Today show with Troy Anderson, Executive Director of Officer Safety and Wellness for National Law Enforcement Officer Memorial Fund. Their website, nleomf.org. If you thought all they did was a memorial, you're wrong. They do so much more. He's also a retired Connecticut State Police Sergeant, served 26 years. Before that, his law enforcement career, military and civilian, spanned a total of 30 years. Before we break, Troy, we're talking about Sandy Hook, and we're talking about the importance of trying to protect the, the mental health and wellness. And I, that's a term that's used a lot. And the term resilience, I think a lot of people get confused with that as well, because for me, it's a foreign concept. I get it now. But when you said trying to protect the mental health and wellness of those making the death notifications of the parents of the children that are killed at Sandy Hook or teachers, and how traumatic that could be. One of the smart things that you all did is, you, in my opinion, you use people that were not at the scene. There's not reinforcing the negative. They got to go through that whole visualization again. And they, these people can't answer questions because they weren't there. I think that's valuable. And I applaud you for that effort. That was great thinking on your part. Well, I appreciate that. One, you know, I think one of the one of the key messages that that we were able to get out, along with, you know, kind of how to do and how not to do a death notification, is also helping the folks that were on those teams recognizing that this, as difficult as this is going to be, uh, and I think this is a lesson we can all learn in law enforcement. But that is, this is not your trauma, right? This, it, while you are exposed to it and you are a part of it, you are going out to this family, and this is their trauma. And this is their worst day. And you are going to be part of that worst day for them. But you can't carry this around. It's not your cross to bear because you're going to have a lot of traumas in your career. Yeah. Maybe not to this magnitude, but you're going to have a lot of traumas. So, you know, the, the, the key, I think, for us was to make sure that when 
When we got done having these, uh, I was at that school for eight days. So certainly the first day was difficult, but I don't know that any day was, was less difficult. It just, I mean, all the, all the investigation that happened when we were out there was just very, very difficult. But once that was over after eight days, we really had to focus on what are we going to do for this, this now intervention and postvention piece. And, and that began with doing 33 debriefings all around that area. And those debriefings were not just for the, 200 plus Connecticut State police personnel that were there, but local and federal partners that were there, fire departments, uh, clinicians that were working for Department of Children and Families and Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and even some some chief administrators from the state of Connecticut who were out at the scene as well. So we had a, a number of debriefings. We broke those groups up into to kind of homogeneous groups, obviously trying to make sure that if you were the first group in the door, you would really want to be in a debriefing with that group. Uh, as opposed to traumatizing somebody who was there two days later directing traffic down the street. So we broke those groups up. We did those debriefings. We did debriefings for family members as well, because quite frankly, a lot of the troopers were going home and bringing that with them. And right. it, that was difficult. So we made sure that we, we had spouses and significant others that were invited in. And our plan was to continue to keep doing debriefings until people stopped coming. Now you can have a dis- you can have a discussion about whether debriefing should be voluntary or they should be mandated. Uh, I probably lean more toward mandated now. They were I'm voluntary with you. for You're us. You're preaching to the choir because yeah. if you ask me today yeah. about certain instances, I'm not going to talk to you about it right. unless you force me as a police officer. Would command staff force me? I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying yeah. it's because I'm I- Joe, you know, John Wayne. That's just my mentality. And I got to ask you this, because a big part of, and I know you'll, you'll get this, a big part of our mentality was when you're given a post, you're responsible for everything on that post. And we had a saying, mm-hmm. not on my watch. This stuff's not going to happen sure. on my watch. And I'm sure you had men and women, brothers and sisters, who were walking around going, that wasn't supposed to happen on my watch, but it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm yeah, not God. I, I can't make it, I can't make it all right. Yeah, we, we tend to what if things, don't we? What, what if no. this? What if that? What if I had been near closer? What if anything? And the reality is, um, you know, the, the key at that point is, is really practicing self-care. I think by having, by making debriefings mandatory, one of the things that you help eliminate is that stigma that we talked about early on, because if everybody has to go, you can just blame it on the process. It doesn't show, nobody's going to say, oh, you must be weak because you're going to a debriefing. Blame it on my, no. me, the sergeant, the, the, and blame it on you to sergeant look this is what you got to do be there two o'clock and and, the, and i think the truth for us was in the end we we recognized that a lot of the folks that did not come to these voluntary debriefings uh, very often were were the troopers and officers that were struggling the most yeah. because they felt like they, they could deal with it on their own and unfortunately they then soon became very isolated uh, and alone with their thoughts because they didn't have an opportunity to normalize and have that conversation and one of the greatest things about a debriefing if somebody's never been to one is that normalization that opportunity to have that educational component to learn a little bit about why this is affecting me what I can do to help 
help myself to have the chaplains in the room to address that spirituality piece. Spirituality is big in law enforcement, just like it is in the military. You know, there's that saying in in the army we had, there's no atheists in the foxhole. Uh, the reality is, um, you know, we, we continue to do those debriefings, but then at some point we also realized that we needed to do more. And part of that more was creating these uh, wellness events, because at some point, if you, if you look at the ICISF, which is the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, you look, you look at their book, it really sort of almost ends after debriefings. So what's the next thing that we do? And the next thing is we just started developing wellness events and we would have clinicians. We, we had a couple of trauma-informed psychologists that came in that talked about things like EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a phenomenal modality for law enforcement folks. They really seem to grab onto it. It's very user-friendly. We, we were learning about things like somatic experiencing and brain spotting. And of course, all of these uh, different clinicians were kind of coming forward saying, try this, try this. But EMDR seemed to be very, very effective. So we had EMDR clinicians. We had chaplains. We had our peer support. We come together and do events and really give opportunities to process and learn. And the more that we hosted those events, the more people started coming in and getting engaged that had uh, that were reticent to do that early on. So they, they came and joined they, they came and joined in. And then as we started recognizing that there were a much smaller minority of folks that were really uh, not recovering or not responding as quickly. We started looking outside of the state to see what other people have done. And I have to, I have to give a, a shout out to uh, the Reverend Dr. Eric Skidmore, who works down in the uh, state of South Carolina. He runs a post-critical incident uh, seminar, a program down there. It's a peer-driven, very intensive program uh, that has EMDR, that has clinicians, that has a spiritual component. I will tell you that program was amazing over the the year, year and a half or so after Sandy Hook, we ended up bringing down probably 20 or 30 troopers and officers to those programs um, in Georgia and in South Carolina. And I think that they're in 13 or 14 states now. And please um, tell them I respect. said thank you very much for that. And we'll, I, I can have them on to talk as well. Before we run out of time, this has become kind of your life's mission because uh, you're carrying on with the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund as the Executive Director for Officer Safety and Wellness. I, for years, did not go to the memorial because I was afraid of losing it. And when I worked in radio in Maryland outside of D.C., my wife and I went one day, and it was a cathartic experience for me. It really was. But it was very, very difficult. But that's what I think of the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial. I don't think of the other things you do. What are some of the things that you do as the Executive Director? Well, I, just you know, sort of the the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund at a glance. It's really a three pillar approach that we have. One of of course is the is the law enforcement memorial, which most people are familiar with, uh, and and the candlelight vigil and, and that that side of the house. Um, but on our campus also is the uh, is our is our museum, our National Law Enforcement Museum, uh, right on the campus. It's absolutely beautiful. I'd encourage people to to come out and and experience that. It's phenomenal. 
model, and then our officer safety and wellness programming. Uh, and, and we do a lot more than I think uh, people might know. And, and again, I would encourage folks, as you have, to take a look at our website, nleomf.org, and take a look at officer safety and wellness. And some of the things that we do, we have a, a Safe Leo program, which is a suicide awareness for law enforcement officers. Uh, we have a program that we do work with there. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of information you can find uh, on the website about, about that. Uh, we also have a cooperative agreement with NHTSA. And really, one of the things, you know, when you think about the memorial, you think about the physical plant of the memorial, but it's more than that. Our organization is the leading uh, authority on the certification of line of duty deaths for law enforcement in the country. That's amazing. Uh, so, By the way, you can get so have, more details and contact Troy. Just go to N-L-E-O-M-F dot O-R-G. Look for our team. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Troy, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thanks so much. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.